Amen. Today we are in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read it to you? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Submission. I think in our culture that that carries a negative connotation. But it's defined in Oxford Dictionary as the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. Now, like I said, human tendency is to think of it negatively, and a lot of times we use the word beaten with it, right? He was beaten into submission. But it's also used in beautiful ways, such as she submitted to his loving advances. And I think we should look at the word in that sense because verse 5 of this same chapter tells us that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put in us. The Greek word translated as submission is actually a compound word. It means under and a point. You put those two words together, under and a point. It's someone designated to carry out the will of the one in authority. It's not passively waiting for orders or um, just being ready. Yeah, we are to wait for God's orders and always ready to be this, to serve, but Moyer says the word is a, an enlistment word. It's taking up all allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in the fight under his banner. Let me read that again. Sub submission, in this case, the Greek word, is an enlistment word. The taking up of allegiance to a great superior in order to engage in the fight under his banner. Wisdom, which is analogous to Jesus, when you read of wisdom in the Proverbs, you can just substitute the name of Jesus there and you'll see how, how well it fits. In the Proverbs says, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doors. That's that submission. It's waiting for the instruction to engage. And our passage today begins with this instruction to submit. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In Greek, it's written in a, an imperative way. In fact, there's a number of imperative commands in these few short verses. And it implies a lifelong condition. In other words, submit to God from this point and onward. And the reason we're instructed to do so is in the previous verse. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's imperative that we humbly submit ourselves to God 
if we want to receive his grace. And we all need grace, amen? This is, is a beautiful use of the word submission because God is love. And he wants to bestow his grace on us. Our heart has a need that is only met when we surrender to his love. We try to meet that need with uh, other relationships or things or, as, or experiences, but as Augustine stated, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The perfect husband and wife relationship is just a hint of what God has in store for those who are in Christ. And that's why he calls us the bride of Christ. Marriage in this life is but just a wedding of the appetite for the deepening relationship we have with the Lord. So why then, if this is the case, if, if it's so wonderful and so, so welcoming and so warm and so fulfilling, why doesn't the whole world submit to this love? And this grace, the verse before it tells us the answer. It's pride. Like Eve, we want to be our own God. We want to go our own way. Add to that the most prideful being of all lies to us and tells us that some other way is the way to satisfaction. Or it may be that we find ourselves angry with God over our circumstances. We live in this fallen world, but inevitably we blame God for the effects of sin. How great is the pride that blames God for the things in life that one doesn't want to accept. It reminds us of Adam blaming God for giving him Eve. It's the woman you gave me, that's why I did it. Verse 7 gives us another imperative command, the last half of the verse, re resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a command with a promise attached to it. The word resist was used in combat to take a stand against the enemy. We're reminded that we're in a war over the souls of mankind. The devil, also known as Satan, sees his primary purpose as separating God from man. Separating God and man. That's why we should respond to his attacks by drawing near to God. The opposite of what he wants us to do, draw away from God. We are to draw near to God, which is most often in prayer. But also in reading God's word and being in fellowship with one another in what we just did a few minutes ago, singing praises to God. The devil is powerful, but Christ is infinitely more powerful, amen? So put on the armor of God and we stand our ground, knowing that you and God are majority. <laughs> what is your weakness? What does he tempt you with? When he throws those darts into your mind, first realize that what he is promising is a lie. 
because he's, it's always some kind, this will fulfill you, this will make you happy, oh, you'll, you'll feel complete if you do this, or you'll find really real joy in this. The satisfaction of whatever he offers is short-lived and will cost you more than he lets on. Know that blaming God for what your old nature and Satan cause is exactly what Satan would like. And then remember the promise and tell him, you are the father of lies. I resist you in Jesus' name. And the word of God declares that you must flee. That's swinging the sword of the word of God accurately. And that's humbling ourselves and submitting to God and to his word. Don't get in an argument with him. <laughs> Just tell him that the word is your authority and you spoke it in faith, so go. And then pray, Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your grace to resist the devil. You, Lord, are my satisfaction. What you have done for me is more than enough. No one else could love me more. I am yours. And in doing so, you're yielding to that superior force, to the will of God, which is the definition of submitting. And when we pray God's will, we know that he hears us. Peter gave us a very similar instruction to this verse. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We know that our brothers and sisters in nations close to the gospel are standing their ground despite the threats to their lives, and some are even giving up their lives for the Lord. So what's our excuse? Verse eight, we continue on with these imperative commands. Draw near to God. And the promise, and he will draw near to you. So what do we do when we're tempted? What do we do when the enemy of our soul presents us with what seems to be irresistible? when what our nature craves is set before us on a silver platter, where do we turn? Well, if we've submitted ourselves to God, we rebuke the thought, we strip down the lie and expose the damage it would do to us and to those we love, and we raise up the shield of faith. And then we draw near to God, grab hold of his word, and swinging the sword of the spirit, we command him to be God. We think of all that Jesus has done for us. We think on the cross and the price he paid so that we could resist the devil. <laughs> Before we received them, we just could not. Think on the goodness he's brought into our lives and the glorious future that we have in him. Let, him, let the Lord remind you of his promises and hold you close. Hughes writes, if you inch towards God, he will step toward you. Step toward God and he will sprint toward you. Sprint toward God and he will fly to you. We draw near in prayer. We fight with spiritual weapons that are mighty through God. There's no need to watch the enemy flee. <laughs> he will count it done. This verse promises it will be so. 
Just keep your eyes on Jesus, seated at the right hand of God with all authority and power. And look at his hand. He's engraved you on his palm. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 49, 16, he's engraved you on his palm. C.H. Spurgeon commented on that verse in Isaiah. He said, Oh, unbelief, how strange a marvel thou art. We know not which most to wonder at, the faithfulness of God or the unbelief of people. He keeps his promise a thousand times, and yet the next trial makes us doubt him. He never faileth. He's never a dry well. He's never a setting sun, a passing meteor, or a melting vapor. And yet we are continually vexed with anxieties, molested with suspicions, and disturbed with fears as if our God were a mirage in the desert. Behold is a word intended to excite admiration. Here indeed we have a theme for marveling. Heaven and earth may well be astonished that rebels should obtain so great a nearness to the heart of infinite love as to be written on the palms of his hands. I have graven thee. It doesn't say thy name. Thy name is there, but that's not all. I have graven thee. See the fullness of this. I have graven thy person, thy image, thy case, thy circumstances, thy sins, thy temptations, thy weaknesses, thy wants, thy works. I have graven thee, everything about thee, all that concerns thee. I have put thee all together there. Wilt thou ever say again that thy God hath forsaken thee when he has graven thee upon his own palms? And who could reject such a great love? The prideful. That's why God must resist the proud. That's their choice to reject such great goodness and love. And he will not force his love upon us. He may bring calamity into our lives so that we might open our eyes to our true condition, and that would be a blessing. But if we continue to harden our hearts, he will let us have our way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. It's the love of God that brings us to our knees so that we change direction. The last half of verse 8 and verse 9, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So James confronts us with this call to repentance. It's a call to open our eyes to the reality that we either avoid or we haven't seen. In our prideful arrogance, we don't realize that our, our true condition, or we don't want to consider it. It's as Jesus said to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, 17 to 19, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten. So be zealous and repent. Though they were prospering with, when their goods increased, their souls shrank. Jesus tells us what we really need. James writes that the outward and the inner person must change. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Sin soils the hands. And we still use that expression, don't we? His hands are dirty, meaning he was involved in something that was wrong, an evil deed. The reason we sin with our actions is because we've allowed our old nature to take the throne in our hearts. And repentance allows God to purify our hearts. When I was a teenager, I worked at a, at a gas station. Um, what is it now? Texaco, it's at the roundabout in the middle of town. Of course, back then there were no roundabouts. It was a stop sign, a three-way stop sign. And um, I worked on car engines. And my hands would get all black and greasy, you know, from dealing up with the car and in the engine. And we had this special goo, and it came in a can, and it was called Gojo. And when you open the can, it is pure white. So you take a little scoop out and you put it and rub it on your hands and you push it all around on your hands and it sucks up all that grease and grime and the white gojo becomes dark gray as it absorbs all that grime. Jesus knew no sin. He was as pure as snow spiritually, but he took our sins upon himself so that we could be clean. Cleansing and purifying, what James, the words James is using here come right, like a lot of James, come right out of the Old Testament. They were provisions for priestly purity and ministering to the things of the Lord. But both also came to be used of ethical purity. You know, before they went into the temple and did their duty, they had to cleanse their hands and look at their hearts to make sure they were right with God. But it became something that everyone was to do if they were to stand before God. The psalmist required clean hands and a pure heart for those who would stand before the Lord, Psalm 24, 3 and 4. And James asked the same of those who would draw near to God. Just like the Old Testament priests who's entered the inner sanctuary, we enter the heavenly sanctuary in prayer, and we better be clean. So how do we do that spiritually? We repent. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means we turn away from doing what is wrong. We determine to let God help us change. And that's the next phrase, 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Literally, the words are two-souled. We have two souls, the old man and the new man. And on our own, it's just not possible to serve both, to remain two-souled. We have to serve one or the other. One will win out. The white righteousness of Jesus takes all that grime of sin upon himself and leaves us clean. We no longer waver between Jesus and the sin that entices us. Our hearts are set on him to be our sole satisfaction, our only satisfaction, our everything. We submit our body in his service and holy living, and that turns our mourning into dancing with joy. Repentance isn't just simply remorse for mistakes. Sin is deadly serious. The heart must realize how pride and going our own way is spitting in the face of our Creator. We must realize that sin is turning our back on the goodness and love of God. It's a revelation of how we cause such grief to the heart of God and pain Jesus went through to pay the debt that we owe. And when we see how gracious and good he's been to us, we realize how hard-hearted we've been toward him. Now, James was writing all this to, to the churches that, that had scattered from, from Israel out into the other countries. Does he think maybe that some of them are not born again? This is pretty harsh language. What we've seen so far is that some people in, in the churches that James is writing to showed partiality. They would curse others. They caused division. They coveted leadership. They had fits of anger as well as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He's encouraging believers to recognize their sin and the seriousness of it. He wants them to quit making excuses for their sin, to mourn and weep over the error of their ways that they might receive grace. Be humbled and thereby be exalted by God. Could there be a greater exaltation than being a child of God destined to be conformed to the image of Christ? Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Jesus set that example. Philippians 2, 5 through 9 have this mind in yourselves, which was also in yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of a man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example of what James was teaching here. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will exalt you. This is the need of every believer. The old nature is naturally prideful. The new nature is humble and submissive to God. 
when you find yourself defensive, having to have the last word, thinking you you need to correct others, coveting a, a leading role, thinking that you can contemplate temptation or, or just do life on your own without him. Know that God opposes the proud. Know that grace is given to the humble. Realize where your heart is and draw near to God by repenting with your whole heart. Realize how weak you are and how much you need the Lord. It's a strange thing that when you no longer seek to be exalted, indeed know you're not worthy of exaltation, it's then that the Lord exalts you. Humility knows that God alone is worthy to lead and direct and be honored. It knows how short we fall. That is why God can exalt that person, for he knows that they will depend completely on him and not on their own abilities, as earnest as they may be. Remember the tax collector and the publican who were praying in the temple? And the tax collector beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he went away justified. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's an often repeated theme throughout scripture. So let's, let's consider a few examples in, in the lives of people other than Jesus, how this played out. One great example is Saul. God had Samuel pick Saul as the first king of Israel, and when the people gathered to anoint him as king, he hid. <laughs> he, he was humble. He didn't think he could do the job. But after a few victorious battles, he started to think highly of himself. He even took the priest's role and slaughtered the sacrifice before the battle because he thought his army would flee or dissolve if he didn't. But who was he trusting? Himself. And he went on to disobey the command of God and Samuel prophesied his kingship would be taken from him and given to another. In humility, he was exalted. In his pride, he was brought low. It was true of David as well. He didn't want his father to know Samuel's prophecy that he would become king. And then later, when Saul offered his daughter to him, he said, who am I that I should marry the king's daughter? He was humble even knowing that he would become the king. But like Saul, after many successful battles and fame in his pride, he thought he could take any woman he wanted and even had Uriah the Hittite killed so he could take his wife. But God in faithfulness confronted David and he repented, but God's humbled him even more with the rebellion by his son Absalom. We also have the example of Moses. Like David, when God called him to go deliver the people of Israel, he said, who am I? He was humbled by his failure to deliver the Israelites in his own power. He was humbled further by living as a shepherd, but that made him a candidate for exaltation. He called down plagues at God's command and led that vast number of Israelites and Egyptian converts to the promised land but in an unguarded moment, frustrated with the people's demands, he thought he could do something without God. 
which resulted in God humbling him again. He said, shall we bring water from this rock for you? Referring to himself and Aaron. And for the sin of taking the glory on himself, he was humbled to not enter the promised land. So what can we learn from these historic examples of, of godly men, heroes of the faith, once humble and exalted, yet who needed to be humbled again. We must watch our souls carefully. Pride can take the throne in a heart regardless of how long a person has been with the Lord or how zealously he or she has served him. It seems the higher we rise, the more likely we are to succumb to pride. We who have our little parts in serving the king can be thankful we're not called to greater things that may cause us to be prideful and fall as well. If these great men of God succumb to pride, we should also always be wary that our hearts do not lean in that direction. Always realize that we are but dust with the breath of God in us. Do you need more grace? Humble yourself. Recognize how desperate you are for God's grace, for his guidance, and realize that without him, you can do nothing. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the promise for us to take home. Would you lead us in a closing song? Let's stand and sing together, and then I'll give the benediction.